from FasterMind.co. This is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about that space, that tension between the stuff you make and making money or something valuable from your stuff. The show lives where creativity and business collide, giving all of us the opportunity to rethink how we work and live in the digital economy. You know, there's a thousand people out there who are naysayers. You know, I think on any level, whether you're an artist, you know, painting, whether you're a writer, I mean, I've happened to have written some books as well. So I, I kind of know that, that creative side as well, if you're writing. And uh, you, you just have to say, look, you know, I have something to say, and I'm going to say it. To say that my guest today is a success story would be a dramatic understatement. Dr. Sanjay Sharma is a world-class ophthalmologist, he's a retina specialist, he's a multi-time author, and he's an entrepreneur. And on top of all that, Sanjay comes from a family of ridiculous success stories. His brother, Robin Sharma, is a world-class speaker, author, and a serious leadership guru. Even his 13-year-old son, Evan, He's a world-class Fovis painter. But when I met Sanjay Sharma, he was just my older brother's high school friend. And like most kids with older siblings in small towns, there wasn't much of an expectation that guys like him would take much notice of guys like me. But Sanjay was different. He seemed to notice everything in ways that others didn't. And he'd talk about them too. And what I mean to say is he wasn't like a know-it-all. He was more like, like Socrates. He was curious. Now, fast forward to today, and Sanjay has built a remarkable body of work. And for most people, quote, successful doctor would have been enough. But the reason I asked him to be on Converge wasn't because of all of his accomplishments. I invited him on because of what he did with his accomplishments. You'll hear all about that in a minute, and it really is an amazing story. But please don't miss the bigger narrative. Sanjay is special not just because he's talented or comes with a great pedigree. He's remarkable because he takes what he's got and sees that as the starting point. He's made a life of applying a layer of creativity when others ride off to the sunset. As you listen, friends, I dare you to consider your own possibilities. What if this was just your starting point? What if this was just the beginning? So Sanjay, welcome to Converge. It's a pleasure to be here. Sanjay, what's amazing to me is we've known each other, I think, for almost 35 years. And we've not seen each other in probably 25, but it's extraordinary to me the journey you've been on going from you know East Coast Canada to um, really an extraordinary life, extraordinary family, uh, your, your career in medicine and entrepreneurially way beyond that. You know, a lot of the folks that are listening to my podcast, they're uh, creatives, artists, and I see you in the exact same vein. But talk to us a little bit about your journey in adulthood and, the, and the, your body of work that you've created over the years. Yeah, no, first, 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 it's great to, to reconnect, absolutely. You know, it has been an interesting journey for sure. I mean, growing up on the East Coast, I think we were exposed to a, a lot of various, uh, very interesting 
varied scenarios, right? So we both our families shared the passion for the arts. And certainly, you know, I grew up in a science background, but as I went to medical school and became an eye surgeon, on some level, I felt that the creativity wasn't necessarily there. So I, I went on to do a graduate degree in epidemiology, which allowed me to do a lot of research, which is creative in a sense as well. And then, you know, one thing led to another. We started a video company because we wanted to do a fair bit of knowledge translation in, in the digital format. And what led me to med school was that we wanted to look at a better way to teach today's medical students. And, and so it gave us a chance to embrace a lot of multimedia, which is, anim- you know, so essentially we're running an animation company with lots of video. And it's, uh, yeah, it's been a great ride. A very unexpected, uh, you know, lots of turns along the way. But it's funny, I think most people think of medicine as a strict science, but uh, there's a lot of art associated with it. I'm in agreement. I think that there's, it's understated. Well, I guess where I first acknowledged the artistic side of medicine was with my own having kids. Like I, I thought of science and the medical field in general as this kind of place where you can find certitude and clarity. And then I had kids and brought them to the doctor and realized like, yeah, the doctor knows a lot, but, uh, and surgeons know a lot, but they're also guessing or not guess, guessing's too unfair. They're taking a lot of creative kind of engagement. Like there's things that they know, but they also are increasingly aware of what they don't have access to. And it seems like some of the efforts to find, like to break new thresholds in, in science, uh, in medicine in particular, it seems like it's coming out of this artistic side of it. Is that a fair way to put it? Or like, it's, it feels like all my scientific friends are mystics uh, once they really get into their work at any level of depth. Yeah, that's a great way of thinking of it. I think we've really embraced the concept of evidence-based medicine, which is looking at latest scientific facts based on randomized clinical trials and meta-analyses. And that's traditionally how we've been practicing medicine over the past you know, decade or so. But you reach a point where there's, you know, science is at a certain level, and then you need to go to the next level. And that's where you need guys who can think very creatively think in a blue sky sort of way to, to push the envelope, right? And, and create the next breakthrough, whether it's biologic agent in areas that I deal with, macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy, or, you know, the latest surgical technique. So it's, you really do need, I think, uh, you know, a cutting edge physician has to incorporate both parts of their brain, I think. I think the other issue is, you know, I think there's a lot of research starting to show that, the next generation of physicians are really wired differently than the last generation. They've been brought up on, you know, YouTube, Instagramming, Snapchatting. And so the the modes of delivery for content and absorption for them is quite different than the one hour didactic lecture. So it's, uh, it's interesting the way that look at things is actually a little bit more, you know, a little different than traditionally, I guess. And that's a great parlay into what you're, you've been up to lately. I mean, I think of you as a, a scientist, and, a, and I keep saying scientist, but I, I, when, especially around eyes, it feels like science is so core to what you're doing and the, kind of the, the investigation, uh, and as a surgeon, of course, but as a medical scientist, and then from there going into this artistic bias, and then this entrepreneurial bias where, you, you know, when you're looking at the education side of the equation, that you are coming up with a lot of creative ways to not only be a surgeon, but actually educate. And you created this new platform called MedSchool, M-E-D-S-K-L.com. 
will you share a little bit about both the vision behind what you were creating and what you're hoping to accomplish with it? Sure. So I'll take you back a couple of years ago. So I, I teach at Queen's University and I was in front of the classroom. My lecture that I was giving that day was on acute visual loss. And what became pretty apparent to me as I was giving that lecture was within about five minutes or so, you know, I saw the screens booted up, the, the kids were logging on to YouTube and Facebook, uh, and they weren't really too engaged in my lecture. So like you had glossy-eyed students is what you're telling me. Yeah, yeah definitely, within, within a few minutes. Yeah, so I came, you know, I went home and I started talking to my wife about it, and we were just starting to think about, you know, is it the way that we're lecturing, or is it is there a fundamentally a disconnect between the way students are consuming or brought up on content and what we're delivering? Interestingly enough, my younger son Evan, who's an artist, you know, happened to to pop downstairs while he was doing some of his work. You know, I was sort of stunned at some of the things that he was painting, and I so he's self-taught, and I and I asked him, I said, you know, how exactly? did you learn to paint like this? And, and he just sort of said, YouTube. And it was a bit of a times in life when light bulbs sort of all go off simultaneously. And then I started thinking more and more saying, okay, well, you know, if you're really learning tons of stuff on YouTube, you know, maybe we need to be infusing that kind of medium into the, into the medical curriculum. So that was really the starting point for what we're doing on medschool.com. So it was saying, okay, you know, how, do, how does the next generation learn and let's try to develop a platform that really leverages a lot of those tools and instruments. And so the next step was our, our vision was to say, well, you know, it would be incredible is if we could get together lessons from award-winning physicians right across the board. Now, in, here in Canada, the medical curriculum is sort of overseen by the Medical Council of Canada. And they say, you know, roughly you guys have to, each medical school has to cover 200 objectives. And so that's everything from acute visual loss to you know, making sure that the students can manage a patient with chest pain, another person walks in the door with a breast lump, and everything in between. And so that was our starting point. We said to ourselves, here's 200 core presentations. Uh, let's try to identify a world expert who's an award-winning lecturer in each of these domains. And so we quickly put together a team of probably 75 medical student volunteers right across North America and we identified people who were very passionate about medical education, who were willing uh, to work with us on the, uh, on the platform. So, yeah, that was really the genesis for, you know, the vision. We've uh, just recently launched, and, and thankfully, you know, we've had students from over 50 universities already register. Uh, so we're pretty quickly gaining momentum. I guess, you know, where do we see the future of it? We're in discussions with, with many medical schools, both in the U.S. And, and most schools here in Canada, to have them adopt, you know, our lessons in a what's called a flipped classroom strategy. And what I mean by that is the core one-hour lecture would be redesigned in the sense that students would consume content a couple of days before the lecture, um, so they would get the, the core elements of the lecture. And then when they actually go into the lecture, it would allow the local professor to provide, you know, here's three or four cases, let's discuss them. So it's, uh, it's some sort of offloading of the learning process to earlier on, and then, and then they can really get into the nitty-gritty and, and lots of clinical pearls can be discussed in that one hour. I'm guessing that you the comparison to Khan Academy comes up a lot in your conversations. Is that fair? Yeah, it does. It does. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think Khan sort of was certainly a maverick and, and a trailblazer, um, and he's done a, a great amount for, I think, online education 
So yeah, he, he, he's being great. I think where we probably differ is if I was to be kind, I would have to learn every single presentation and be a gynecologist and, and be a breast surgeon and be a neurosurgeon and everything. Um, so, so I reached out to, to a lot of people who I thought were, you know, outstanding. And, uh, you know, thankfully I think the breadth of what we offer is, uh, is quite interesting. You know, I'll also say that what our research showed was that there certainly are different learning styles out there for medical students. So there's text-based learners, there's audio learners, there's visual learners like myself. And so we wanted to provide an offering that really reached out to all of them. And so at the core, our modules are two-minute whiteboard animations. So, for instance, when I do my lecture on acute visual loss, the students can consume a small two- to three-minute video that's really a whiteboard animation that tells them what you absolutely need to know if someone walks in the door with acute visual loss. For text-based learners, we have a 1,000-word written summary and then we have uh, a full lecture. Now, when I say full lecture, we started out with one-hour lectures, and our folks at groups were like, there's absolutely no way we're sitting through one-hour lectures anymore. And I think this is where the guys at TED Talk got it right. So the, the 15 to 18-minute lecture seems to be the sweet spot for getting enough information across that you know, you're delivering your core message, but short enough that you're not actually losing your the attention of your uh, of the students. So that's uh, you know that's certainly the way that we've embraced our, our digital learnings. Right. So whereas Khan was more kind of the, the single approach, uh, you know, he's going to be the, and it makes sense at the level he was educating on, he's a bright guy, uh, but it was, it was, he's it, a general. So he is a breadth of knowledge and he's a learner himself and sharp guy. So he, he the K-12 in particular space, he can do a lot. And he goes beyond that certainly. But I love, especially for med students, and training med students, I like that you're pulling from a lot of resources. So you have a team approach. You're kind of pulling in MVPs. And you're also pulling from best learnings from places like TED and others where because of learning styles, adult learning styles in particular, whether visual, auditory, text-based, you're standing on all of those folks' shoulders and creating the next kind of iteration of what's possible for learning around the very area that could really move the needle for culture and society uh, in terms of serving them around medicine. It's extraordinary, man. It's amazing what you built. I appreciate it. It's been uh... It's funny, you know, and, and this is where I know a lot of your your listeners are, are artists out there and, you know, and even entrepreneurs. And I, and I think we all share the same spark, right? At the very beginning, you know, if we go back two, three years ago, you know, you're sitting in a situation where there's a stimulus there where, where someone, you know, someone's not reacting the way you want them to react. And then there's a spark of creativity. And it's it's interesting how a little voice in your head uh, can be amplified through various processes to to get us to this point. So, I guess uh, it's a shout out to all your your listeners out there who are you know I'm sure you know sometimes particularly in education you know there's a lot of inertia and there's a lot of red tape to to cut through. So you know certainly you do sort of have to, have to listen to that little voice in your head that that says you can move forward and and do interesting things. And to lean into that and go a little further with it, when you talk about creatives and artists, especially those who can help translate, like when I looked at some of your animations at med school, uh, what I was struck by was, you know, I could get it. (laughs) And somebody had to do some translating to help me understand that to take these very kind of $2 words and multi-syllable 
you know, Latin-based words that I didn't understand uh, and somehow make it accessible to even someone like me. That translation is a skill set in and of itself. And then the actual animation of it is a skill set on top of that. How much have you leaned on on creatives to help to bridge the translation so people could get these visual cliff notes quickly? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, luckily, our team is a great mix of scientists as well as creative types. And two or three of our core animators happen to be both trained in, in physics or science as well you know, as having an art, artistic background. So I guess we're lucky in that sense. But you know, it's, it's interesting as you move from the written word, how the best way to really visually describe that is, uh, I think, is an art, an art in itself. And I think the other issue is not just what you see on the screen, but it's the words that are written to ensure that they stick. And so something that comes to mind right away is the concept of anaphylaxis. So anaphylaxis, has, you know, as, as we all know, is, you know, can happen um, where there's a massive allergic reaction to, you know, pee. I love that you said that we all know. Hilarious. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so for instance, you know, a, a small percentage of people, if they take something like a peanut, um, can have a, a massive reaction to it. You know, whereby there's, you know, potentially um, at its end stage could be cardiovascular collapse and, and potentially death. And so one of the lecturers, I think from Toronto, who gave this lecture, you know, came up with the concept of um, skin plus one. So it's a, you know, a skin rash that can happen very quickly, but plus one other body system can have a reaction. And so traditionally we, we think of, you know, starting to cough or wheeze, but you could have any other system in the body have an adverse reaction. So like the gastrointestinal system or a seizure. And I think a lot of students don't know that. And so, you know, it's the concept of coming up with something that sticks, like a word like or a phrase saying skin plus one equals anaphylaxis. That's really a creative way of, you know, ensuring that you're you're delivering a message. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, we, we really sit at a whiteboard we see what's coming in from the different doctors, and then we we help them really create that message. And then it moves on to the animation side, and the animators then, you know, for a 250-word transcript, come up with eight to ten drawings that really convey that message. And so, yeah, it's it's it's, a, it's an incredible process to see unfold. You know, I guess I, I just started with it, but by bringing in more and more creative people, I mean, they're really running with the ball at this point. So it's it's a phenomenal process. I've spoken at a, a handful of events where they would actually bring out an animator during a talk, for example. And it reminds me of, uh, we actually had a guest on the show very near the beginning who he, he created this animation online called The Story of Stuff and it became this very kind of popular piece online. But what was interesting was as he was talking about that that translation and putting it up and choosing, like you say, the words or the visuals with every choice to do that, there's a constraint being built in. Like there's, we're taking kind of shorthand and you want to pick the right shorthand because like there's things that could get cut out that could be critical and things that could be put in that was aren't, aren't necessarily relevant. Do you ever get concerned that you're putting the wrong stuff in or the right stuff in when, when you're trying to do that shorthand? Or is it just that because you have, you're giving the shorthand version, the medium version and the long version that you'll catch it in the end and it's there's a little bit more flexibility there? Yeah, that's a great question. The first way to answer that is our hope is that each of the three pieces of content can stand alone. So the emphasis on that 
two-minute whiteboard animation, for instance, is really, here's what you absolutely need to know if someone walks in the door with acute visual loss in, in my area. And so what I say there is you just can't, like there's no way that you can afford to miss someone with a retinal detachment or someone with something called giant cell arteritis because giant cell arteritis is an inflammation that can affect the rest of the body. And unfortunately, if they're not put on steroids promptly, they can die. You know, for me, to be able to, I need to be able to convey two or three things uh, that if, if the students don't learn anything else from the lecture, they have to remember those two core points. So that really drives, you know, a very short message. And then you're quite right. I mean, the 15-minute the lecture allows us to get into much more common, like here's three or four things that traditionally will walk through the door with acute visual loss. So I think that the length of the medium that you're using sort of dictates what's going to go in and some of the pictures that you use and the thought process behind it. So, um, I mean, that would be my, my first sense is each, each thing should stand alone. But you're right, I, there, we do have a bit of a safety valve uh, by, by having a broader offering and, and people could go in to get the complete meal, so to speak. You know, one last thing I want to mention, you mentioned Evan earlier, but your son, Evan Sharma, is not just like, oh, it's cute that he's a young kid and can create a little bit. Like, he is masterful in his ability to paint and not just that medium, but like several mediums, but a particular painting. Can you talk a little bit about as you're kind of doing this foray into med school and your own practice and educating all over the country, and then all of a sudden your son shows up as like Picasso in your basement. Talk a little bit about that, because I, I honestly, I want our listeners to get exposed to him. I, I was so mo- so moved when I saw his work. Tell a little bit about Evan's Evan story. Yeah, no, I, I guess before I even get into to Evan's particular story, I, I, like I think that's you know, that's a lesson itself, right? It's, it's that children come to us, I think, pretty developed, right? And as we're talking a lot about education here, you know, sometimes the teachers themselves could, they can be, you know, as a father yourself, I'm sure on an ongoing basis, you're, you're learning a lot from your kids if you're receptive to it, you know, and they can certainly teach us a lot of life lessons. With respect to Evan, the interesting thing is neither Susan and I are, are artists. And so, Back when he was about 10 years old, we were lucky enough to take him to the Louvre and MoMA. And the first thing that struck me was how long he was actually staring at, at paintings for. You know, I, I, I was there sort of moving on to the next painting. But he would sit there for just quite long periods of time staring at the art pieces. So when he came back to, to Kingston, you know, he said, you know, I want to I start to paint. So he started painting and, you know, pretty quickly he was, he was painting on cardboards to start and he was kind of begging us to buy him canvases and but it became apparent quite quickly that he, you know, he seemed to have um, some innate talent in this area because he he never had any lessons. And probably by the second or third canvas that he painted, I, I sort of looked over to my wife Susan and said, "I'd probably buy that painting." And then, kind of fast forward, you know, he 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 did a little project um, in school on art uh, where he interviewed a, a local curator, and he said, "Oh, you know, quite sort of quietly, you know, I, I'm an artist too." And she was like, "Oh, that's great." And she showed him this painting, and I, you know, I can still see it, you know, her face right now. And, and it was, she was all, you know, stunned really, I think, by what he created. So she took a picture of it, put it on Facebook, and started generating a lot of buzz online. Um, he then happened to interview another person for the same project, a local artist in town, who said, you know, I, I think your painting's incredibly uh, strong, and maybe you should apply to this art show in Toronto. 
And I, I think she sort of meant, you know, five, 10 years down the road. And, and again, particular, you know, 12 year old fashion, he took it to say, okay, I got to apply right now. And so we sort of forgot about it because the, the jury process takes a number of months. And, and then we got this letter saying that it was accepted. And then as I read the fine print, it was, uh, you know, it was 19 plus for this event, black tie, that event. And, and so I, I, you know, I phoned them and they said, you know, I don't know if you know, but Evan's only 12 years old. And they said, the jury didn't know, but, but he's got a spot, but it means that you're going to have to take the week off and come with him. So oh my gosh. Uh, it was, it was sort of a fun thing. And then he was on, you know, the kind of the national news because he was the youngest person, I guess, to, to show at this particular event. And then since then, things have kind of exploded for him. So, yeah, I mean, people have, uh, I guess, you know, everywhere from New York City to London, England are, are buying his stuff up. And uh, it's just a crazy sort of thing because he's otherwise he's just a, you know, a typical young little guy. He, he just loves fishing and, uh, you know, sailing and doing all these fun things. But he but he just when he's in front of a canvas, he just, uh, he takes on a, a, a totally different mindset. And uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, creative thing to see, actually. So I'm just sitting here listening and, and thinking about our listeners and what is in their mind right now, because they've heard a, a narrative of, you know, you and I grew up in a kind of, you know, it's a populated part of the world, but it's compared to say California or Toronto, or like there's, there's big places and there's little places. We came from a little place. And out of that little place in your story, you found yourself into this in this kind of curious spot of noticing the times and the opportunities that were shifting, even as you're part of a tradition, a medical tradition that's been clearly evolving for quite some time. But this was a kind of a tectonic moment, especially when it comes to educating around medicine. And you were there at that moment and your son helped you see the shift and yeah, you made the shift and you've made this incredible platform at med school and hopefully are transforming what it means to to become a medical practitioner. And in the middle of all that, you know, you and your wife discover you have this prodigy uh, in your home. And I think you're probably understating the context of the kind of environment you had set so that he felt so comfortable with his own skin and like that he could even discover that he had these these kinds of extraordinary gifts and that he's also taking those gifts and practicing them, like expanding them. And, and who knows what he'll, he'll become in the, in the years to come. But if I'm listening to the story, it's fascinating. And at the same time, it could be debilitating. Like, wait a second, I didn't have parents like you guys. And wait a minute, I'm not a doctor. You know, I don't see how I'm going to translate this to a cutting edge educational, you know, I'm not Sal Khan or Sanjay Sharma. So if I'm listening to all these, this inspiring stories, I actually think that there's some significant principles in here that anyone could access. And I'm curious, as you sit down and have coffee with your friends, whether they're on the science side of the equation or the art side of the equation, or they're trying to put things together in an entrepreneurial side of the equation, what are the common conversations that you find yourself in where you're feeling like you're, if you had one piece to share with folks that are in very different places than you are, but are still striving to make something out of what they're making? What are some kind of learnings you've had over the years that you would share with a friend over coffee? Great question. If I'm, if I'm giving advice to my kids, for instance, I would say that the very first thing that you need to do is just keep your eyes open and just be open to things. And the concept or the, you know, the idea of opportunity, I mean, there's, there's just so many potential opportunities out there, but you just have to be open to them. You know, the opportunity can be from something you read you know, you, you could be reading the news and say, well, here's what's happening on a macroeconomic level. And wouldn't it be interesting if we could design or change something 
on this level. So I, I think the first thing is just be open, you know, to problems and, and solutions. And then the second thing is uh, you just have to have this core belief that you can do it. And, and quite honestly, I mean, I, I've had a chance to meet a lot of people in the different sectors, whether it's, you know, peak performers in healthcare, whether it's outstanding artists. And we can also have a discussion for how we define success, because it's not necessarily the revenues that you make or the impact of numbers of views on some social media channel, but it's it's really sort of being true to yourself in, in a lot of ways. I, you know, as we get older, I think about that more and more. But you do have to sort of listen to what's core inside, and then I think try to create a solution that you're that you're comfortable with. And there's you know there's a thousand people out there who are naysayers. You know, I think on any level, whether you're an artist, you know, painting, whether you're a writer, I mean, I've happened to have written some books as well. So I, I kind of know that that creative side as well, if you're writing and uh, you, you just have to say, look, you know, I have something to say and I'm going to say it. And then I think the third thing I would say to my kids is, you know, if, if you want to translate this into a business or into the entrepreneurial world, you know, you have to also understand a little bit about how to create something that might you know have a message that sticks and that's potentially scalable so those are you know if i had to give three pieces of advice to people you know it's it's stay open to opportunities it's to to listen to to the little voice inside because that's how any you know anyone started who you know has created something that's great and then you know you do probably have to think a little bit about the uh, the business side and how how you can reach uh, you know a, a large number of people, um, if that's going to be your sole source of, uh, of income. It's funny, before we started, we chatted a little bit about uh, Seth Godin, and, but he describes his life often as he spends a lot of time noticing. And then based on what he notices, he writes it down. <laughs> In fact, he has the habit of writing it down every single day. In that effort of noticing and writing down, and that's his medium, he develops a perspective or a take. And as that deepens, it's amazing how he calls it drip, drip, dripping, the drip, drip, dripping of just constantly having the habit of creating output and putting it on display and not worrying so much, especially when you're not trying to monetize, not worrying so much about whether or not it's for another, but really, is it true to what you understand to be so? That seems to create value over time because you're testing your ideas, you're seeing if it actually makes sense or not. And then it's interesting because we have this extraordinary moment of virtual scalability like you've created with or taken advantage of at med school. It's amazing how when there's resonance in the marketplace and you put it in a form that can be passed along, how quickly an idea really can spread if there's if it has a fit in the market. And when I think about that, it simplifies the process. Like it's not complicated to notice. It's not complicated to develop a habit. It's not complicated to have the guts to put it out there. But it's so hard. Like it's, it's challenging to overcome these kind of personal psychological barriers. And I love that you framed it around, you know, what I would say to my kids, because I think about what I say to my kids, but I also think of myself as a kid thinking like, when do I get scared? And I don't want to put myself out there. And when do I don't, do you find that whether it's Evan or you, do you ever find yourself coming up against yourself and going like, I don't know if I can do it. Like, I'm just a little, I, I don't, I, I'm nervous that it'll, it'll cost me something that I'm not willing to pay. You know, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I, I do so on a couple levels, right? It's, I think the most precious commodity that you actually have is time. And so when you think about can you do it, I think it's within the framework of saying, I only have X number of hours in the day. 
you know, to be a good father, to be, you know, to deliver health care to my patients, to, you know, write research papers. And if I, if I have to break through, can I really take 80% of my time to put on Project X? So I guess that's where the doubt comes in. It's, it's part of it. It's related to time management. You know, the other interesting thing is, as you were talking, I was thinking about scalability, and there's two sides to scalability. I think traditionally we think of scalability as reach and growth, but the downside of scalability, you know, and, and you can see this in Hollywood certainly is, you know, the negativity that can also arise from scalability. So you can put something out there, and if, the, you know, the first 50 people comment on something uh, that you feel quite passionate about or negative, that may slam the process, you know, right in its track. So there's pros and cons to scalability. So I guess at some point you just have to, you know, it's almost like parachuting or, or I mean, we do a lot of alpine skiing and it took me a while to break through the various phases because I started as a, I came to it late in life and it was, you know, so I started on the bunny hills and, and <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because you really have to force yourself as you're, you know, and we now sort of have ski kind of peaks of the Alps and things like that. And so, at every level, you know, you're challenging, you know, you're embracing your fear and, and managing your fear and have to push through. And I, I just think that it doesn't matter whether you're applying to medical school, you know, whether you're operating on someone for the first time, whether you're approaching a canvas for the first time or whether you've got an idea for a screenplay. At some point, you just have to say, this is how I'm going to live my life and I'm going to take that risk. Man, thank you so much for being on Converge. What a gift, man. And what a gift to reconnect after all these years. I, I can't wait. <laughs> it has been a pleasure. Yeah. It, whenever Evan is showing on the West Coast, please let me know because I'm eager to go, go see him. And by the way, uh, for those of you at home, evansharmer.com and medschoolmedskl.com just to check out what's possible. And uh, I can't thank you enough, Sanjay, for being on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dave. This was episode eight, season two of Converge, the business of creativity podcast. Music today provided by Triple Scoop Music, the leading music service for creative professionals. Find the perfect song for your next project at triplescoopmusic.com. Fastermind.co is home base for all things Converge. It's also where you can find exactly what you need to make real change happen. Like ever want to ditch your not so smart smartphone addiction? Knock that out this week. No kidding. Find out more at fastermind.co. Until then, I'm Dane Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.